Uh, before I, a while I was in seminary, I was a youth minister at a pretty big church in Jackson, First Presbyterian. And so what you do when you're a youth minister at uh, big churches is you go on a lot of trips. And we took the kids to Colorado, not for a camp or anything, but just on a trip, you know. So we did whitewater rafting and all these other things. And one of the big events during this Colorado trip was the peak climb. And the peak climb was a 12,000 or 13 or 14,000 foot peak. It's a little different every year. And one year we were doing it, and the kids, you know, you can tell them all you want. You need to be preparing for this. You need to be going up and down stairs to get yourself in shape for this. They won't do it. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is tell them, you need to drink a lot of water so you'll be hydrated for this. They won't even do that. And so, as we're going up this peak climb, and it's long, and it is steep, and we have uh, guys and girls that are just not prepared for it, and these climbers that were with us, our guides, they were very athletic and very large. And it was their job to get us up there, right? And so they were always kind of pushing, and they were the ones telling us when it was time to go, and the brakes were never long enough. And, and about uh, well into the, the hike up, one of our girls, I say little not because she was young, but because she was about five foot, and she absolutely melted down. I mean, there's no other way to say it. She just... Uh, in front of our faces, melted into a puddle. And it became really funny when she started looking up at this six-foot-three athlete and yelling in his face or into his belly button as far up as she could get. And she started going. He was like, come on, keep going, keep going. And she turned around and goes, I've had enough of you. I pay you. You don't pay me. I tell you when it's time to stop and when it's time to start. And uh, we were all laughing. And uh, he said, Karen, just look around. Look, look, look where you are. And he pointed out that just maybe 100 yards down the path, all of her friends had the ca their cameras out, and they were standing on this, this rocky outcropping. He said, you're there. You just don't see it. Uh, the Christian life is a, is a long trail. It is a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, it is not short. It is not easy. And it is, um, it is not something that comes naturally to you. And a lot of us have questions about why it's so hard. And, and the key to the Christian life is endurance. It's consistency. It's steadfastness. Uh, the, the text we've been reading in Peter and focusing on uh, this semester is 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, and we've already talked about how we add to our faith virtue and how we add to our virtue knowledge and self-control, and now we're going to talk about steadfastness. What does it mean to be steadfast? And now, if you know me at all, you're starting to look at me out of the side of your eyes because you know that steadfastness is not my forte. I, for those of you who don't know, am a quitter. I quit everything. I quit very quickly. I've quit every exercise routine I've ever started. I've quit every diet I've ever started. I've quit every devotional habit that I've ever started. I've quit every self-help routine. You know, one year it's, uh, one year it's headspace. The next year it's 
fit for life. The next year it's uh, who knows what. This year it's being very still. And I quit, and I quit. I'm, I'm an experienced quitter. You're thinking to yourself, we don't want to hear, about, hear from you about steadfastness, but if I had anybody in my life I was trying to convince to quit, I would bring them to you. But what you need to know is this. Even though I have quit many things, even though if you happen to find yourself playing an online game against me, maybe an online game of words with friends or chess, you need to know that I'm probably cheating. Because if there is a shortcut, I will take it. Even though all those things are true, somehow in God's miraculous grace, I am still a Christian at 52 years old. Somehow I am still in the ministry after 25 years of ordained work, and somehow I'm still married. That goes, the grace goes to her. And what you need to know is my secret. If anybody can tell you how to keep going despite how unnaturally it comes, it's actually me. Because it does not come natural. And I had a friend, when I told him I was preaching on steadfastness, he said, are you going to quote uh, the, you know, the pithy saying, blessed are those who never stop, never stopping? And I said, heck no. That would be the most depressing thing in the world. I'm going to give you Ricky's quote. You ready? Never stop restarting. Never stop restarting. If you want to grow in grace, if you want to become everything God wants you to be, then don't hope for a life without mistakes. Don't hope that you will never get tired or exhausted. Never, don't hope that you'll never stumble or stop. Just never stop restarting. We're here for you. We're going to be here every week. You're in our circle. We love you. We have to love you. That's the law. If you want to be growing grace, if you want to be effective and fruitful, if you want to be glorious one day, if you want to make your calling and election sure, never stop restarting. Never stop. That is all we're going to talk about today. And that's the, that I think is one of the main keys to the Christian life. So we're going to talk about what consistency over time means and what is necessary for it. We're going to talk about why it's so hard and why it takes so long. And then finally, we're going to talk about how uh, our, our completion is guaranteed, it's assured. Uh, and all of that with a simple thing in mind, never stop restarting. Please stand as we read from Hebrews chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. For this very reason, make every... I'm sorry, next text. Look up there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgot, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, nor, I'm sorry, nor be, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not more, much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But not God's Word. God's Word stands forever. You may be seated. Never stop restarting. We are on a, a journey that is a long obedience in the same direction. You need to know I didn't come up with that name. That's a book by Eugene Peterson. And to emphasize the point about me, I have never finished that book. I've started it many times, but I've never finished it. Uh, but I uh, hear it's a great book, and what I've read so far I like. Uh, it's a cons consistency. Never stop restarting. Why? Because God loves to work and do beautiful and amazing things through consistency over time. Through consistency over time. What do I mean? I mean, uh, everything he does takes time. Uh, it, it is God's way to wait. We, we grow up in this world where we think, um, we think anything that takes a long time is not worth having. I think really, honestly, my generation, those of you who grew up in the 80s with me, you'll know this. We learned in a very hard way that anything that takes a while is worthless. And I'll tell you how I learned this. I learned this by watching daytime TV. And if you watch a lot of daytime TV, you know, uh, you knew back then anyway, about Ginsu knives. And you know about, uh, you know, the little rotary chopper where you put the blades in and you chop up your potatoes. And, and you learn about, you know, trampolines that make you lose weight and, and all these, these things that they look, that look just like magical. And so you would order them. Check. So we learned that all these things that looked magical, but there was two things about them. The first thing was this. When you ordered them, and this is going to sound so crazy to you, when you ordered them, you have to wait four to six weeks for them to come in. I, I know that sounds amazing. You're thinking to yourself, I could order something on my phone right now, and it would beat me home. But not back then. Four to, I don't know why, I can't imagine why it took four to six weeks to get it there. You could have walked there by then. But that's what it took, four to six weeks. And after all this waiting and anticipation, the day would finally come and you would open up the box and it would be so much smaller than it looked. 
and you would try to chop up your potatoes and it would break almost immediately. And you learned that if you wanted something good, you would go to the store and buy it. And if you wanted some cheap plastic junk, you would wait for it. And I think that somehow infected my spirituality. And I became convinced that if it were real, then God would zap me and make it real. That's the way sanctification should take. I've trusted you, didn't I? I've prayed the prayer. Now, send the zap. Holy Spirit, activate and make me perfect. And that is not how it happens. That's not how God does anything. He is slow. He, is, he does things by consistency over time. What's he doing right now? Let's look at some things. He is growing oak trees all over this world. Oak trees that are strong. Oak trees that the, the very roots of these trees can lift up pieces of marble, can destroy sidewalks. Eventually. When they start out, they're acorns that children can break. When they first start growing, they're little tender shoots that you can step on. But consistency over time, receiving the rain, putting roots down in the nourishing ground, consistency over time, just doing the same thing. It doesn't look like it's doing anything. Just receiving a little light, receiving the water, and it grows, and it grows. And that little that little sprig that you could have stepped on a few years ago is now a huge tree that you could wrap your car around if you're not careful. That's how God works. He waited 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. He's just not in a hurry. He's waiting thousands of years to do his work in this world. And, and every generation has thought Jesus was coming right around the corner. But what's he doing? He's waiting. He's got this beautiful goal, this goal that one day we will, in worship, we will worship saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He is, he's working slowly to this day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's taking his time. And that drives us crazy. But consistency over time is how Jesus works. It's how God works. Now, what does that mean for you? It means it's going to take longer than you want. It's going to mean, it means that, that growing in Christ and developing this character in Christ is going to feel sometimes like it's never going to come. It's just going to take a while. I think the best illustration I've found is uh, in the Velveteen Rabbit. If you haven't read this to your kids lately, you'll, you bless yourself and them if you do that this afternoon before the playoffs. Uh, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> but I love how he descri she describes becoming in here. It's about a rabbit that wants more than anything else in the world to be real. And she doesn't know how to become real, so she asks, what is real to the skin horse in the nursery? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It is a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a really long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. 
When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But those things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. That's a beautiful description of growing in Christ. Just replace the word child with the word Jesus. You don't have to replace anything else. You become. You become. And he loves you, and he really loves you. And the secret is not some prayer that you've not yet prayed. And the secret is not some you know, new habit that you haven't yet formed. The secret is just keep doing what you're doing. In other words, just keep coming back. Just keep coming back. We are all prodigal sons at best. We are all older brothers at worst. And the good news is the feast is always set for us. And the door is always open for us. Just keep coming back. We will be here. Just keep coming back. That's, that's the secret. It's not, it, it doesn't matter what your week has been like. It doesn't matter how deep you are into your heart. And some of you get so deep into your heart, and every now and then I wish I could give you my point of view. You know, you're like Karen, just screaming at the guide, and all you can see is how far you've come, and all you can see is how hard it is. And I want sometimes to point and go, look how far you've come. I remember one of you just a few years ago sitting in my office crying, saying, I thought Christianity was supposed to make your life better. Well, it does. Eventually. And you've come so far since then. I wish you could see it. I can see it. It's obvious. I wish you could. It's, it's a beautiful thing, but if we'll just wait and we'll continue. But why does it take so long? It's a good question. Why does it take so long to be loved into realness? Well, the first reason is because we were really bad to begin with. <laughs> the depth of sin, the, the penetration of sin into our, our beings was deep. The Bible says things like every imagination of man's heart is only evil all the time. That's deep. All the sins that we've committed, all the, the ways we react, the way we, the way we act... Uh, the way we think, it's all very self-centered, and, and God's got to get it all out. And it takes a while to get it all out. And any little pieces that you leave, they just, they corrupt and they stink everything up. It's like cleaning up your car after your child, you know, throws up milk in the back seat. you got to get it all Every drop. I'm getting my son's car detailed. He's coming home from. Uh, he's coming home from Cutter. He's in. He's back in Wichita. Thank y'all for praying for him. And uh, I wanted to have his car detailed for him. <laughs> and so I dropped the car off at nine in the morning on Friday. And I and the guy called me at four, and he said, "Do you need this car back today?" <laughs> I was like, "Guess not." He said, uh, 
I really had to shampoo those seats a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm aware. That's why you have it. it. It takes a long time to get deep dirt out. And that's what God's doing with us. He's getting deep dirt out. And he's not going to leave any of it. He's not going to leave a drop of it. He's making us beautiful. That's one reason why it takes so long. Because we're so broken. But we're better now. Why is it still taking so long? Well, it's taking so long because of what he's building you into. You see, what you want for yourself is so much infinitely less than what he wants for you. You know, think of it like a house. Marianne Williamson and C.S. Lewis both described kind of Christianity as being, being a house. You, your soul is a house. And you think, Jesus is here now. It's awesome to have him for a roommate. And he comes in and he does the dishes for you. You know, doesn't everybody want a roommate who does the dishes? And he cleans up your house. And that's awesome. And you're thinking, life is better now that Jesus is here. And then one day you're laying in your bed, and all of a sudden a wrecking ball comes into the side of the house. And you're jolted out of your bed, and you run out in the yard, and you say, what are you doing? And he said, oh, this wall's got to go. Uh, what are you doing? I'm putting on a wing. I'm adding a whole wing to your house. And then he gets that done. He does the same thing to the other side. And then he, he gets that done. He does the same thing to the back. And you say, when's it going to be good enough? And he says, when it looks like a castle that is worthy of my father dwelling in forever. God is doing something beautiful to you, eternal to you. It takes a long time to do that. It takes a long time. You know, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we're going to judge angels one day. I don't know what that means. Sounds pretty cool. I don't know why angels need to be judged. Don't know why they would want to come to me for judgment. But that's what the Bible says, and I'm supposed to believe all of it. So I believe we're going to be judging angels one day. I'm not ready for that right now. I need to be transformed for that. God's doing more to me than I would have ever wanted. That's why it takes so long. It takes a long time to build something that beautiful. It takes a long time to get all the, the dirt out. And, it, and, and God's also, it takes a long time because God is working on more than just you. God is working on the world. And sometimes we have to suffer. Sometimes we have to go through these times of growth and, and struggle because of what God is doing with the people around us. I mean, there are, there are people in this, this congregation that I've known for years and I, who I love and who I just think, Lord, aren't they sanctified enough? I mean, they've been through enough. And he says back to me, I know, but every time you see her, you get just that much more holy. She just kind of brings you with her. And Ricky, if you'll remember Romans 8, 28, you like that passage a lot. Look at it. it. Everything works together. The Lord is working in everything for the good of those who love him. That's a plural word. It's not just you. It's not like you're the only one I care about. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes one person suffers so that he or she can comfort others with the same comfort that they received. 
You know, that's why, uh, that's why my wife encouraged me to, to, to write about my depression last year. I was like, I'm done with it. I really don't want to think about it anymore. And she said, but other people are there, and they might need that. So if something good can come out of that two years of darkness, let's do it. Maybe the reason why it's taking so long is because God's not only building you into a castle, but he's building this entire world into one. And it takes a long time, and that, that length of time gets discouraging, and we need to remember that Jesus has already done the heavy lifting, that, that our, our completion is assured. He's, there's no chance he's going to leave it incomplete because Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. Look, look again at this text that we read. It says, consider, over and over again, it says, consider, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Verse 2, look to Jesus, the founder and the protector of our, uh, perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross. Now, there's two ways of interpreting that. One way is he could be shaming us. He could be saying, you weakling, look how much Jesus did and look how pathetic you are. Now, hopefully, if you come to this church anytime at all, you know that's not how we read the Bible here. It shouldn't be how you read the Bible anywhere. But I am 100% sure. I don't know what it means to judge angels. There are things in the Bible I don't know. But I know this, 100% sure Jesus did not suffer to shame you. Jesus did not suffer, suffer so that you'd feel guilt about not being able to suffer. That's not how it works. He suffered to take away our shame and to take away our guilt and to take away our, our inadequacies. And he's already done the heavy lifting. The, the book here doesn't mean Jesus did this, so why don't you get fired up and do it? It doesn't mean that Jesus did this, so all you got to do is just sit around and not do anything. But it's a guarantee. Since Jesus did this, you can do it. Since Jesus did this, you can endure. Since he suffered, you can suffer. Since he was faithful, you can be faithful. You can. He's not going to leave you. He's paid too much for you. He's not going to leave you out in the rain to get ruined. We, we, can, we are, are, are guaranteed completion because we're his children. What does this discipline mean? He says, when you're disciplined, that, that should be encouraging to you. Now, I know all of you are thinking, if you grew up at all like I did, when you hear the word disciplined, you're thinking belts and, uh, you know, curfews and groundings. I don't think the word there is about punishment. I'm, okay, the word there is not about punishment. I'll just not be humble. It's not. The word there is discipline. It's like what a coach would do. It's got a goal to it. It's the same root word as disciple. He's making you like him. And yes, it is hard, and it requires doing things that you don't want to do, and it requires doing things longer than you want to do. That's what coaches do. They show you how far you can run, how much you can lift, and what you can do by not letting you quit. And that's what God is doing for us. But why is he doing it? Because he's our father. And, and Paul, I love the way Paul over and over again in Romans and Galatians and other places doesn't simply talk about being, God being our father, but he talks about the spirit of adoption, that we are adopted children. I love that. I love adoption. Because 
there's something true about adoption that's not true of anything else. Adoption in his day would basically be something like this. It would be a, a landowner, a wealthy landowner who had no one to uh, inherit his, his things, um, his, his property, especially if he had all daughters in that uh, patriarchal culture. And so what he would do is he would adopt his most loyal servant uh, with the intention that that servant would take care of his family. But, and that's not what I love about it, but what I love about it is this. From that time until today, God in his providence has preserved this law. It was true in, in Paul's day, and it's true today. If you adopt a child, you can never disown him. No one can be disowned twice. And it's important that Paul doesn't say you're God's children, but you're God's adopted children. Because it has always, always, always meant God cannot disinherit you. He cannot abandon you. You can abandon natural children. You can disinherit them. I threaten that weekly. But not adopted children. They're locked in. That's important for us. It's important to know that he's committed to us. It's important for us to, to reflect on, on who he is and how much he loves us. And 1 Corinthians 6 says we were bought with a price that the value of what he spent on us, your value as a human is not based on what you think of yourself or what you've accomplished. Value in the simple, simplest terms is simply your value is what someone would pay for you. And God himself has shed his own blood for you. You are valued. You are the pearl of great price that he gave everything he had for. He's not going to abandon you or, or stop this work until it's complete because of his love for you. Uh, there's a, one of my favorite texts is uh, John chapter 10 when Jesus is talking about being the shepherd. And he says, the father who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them is greater than all. No one will snatch you from my father's hand. And what I love about that text is that interpreters have argued about it for decades, centuries. We don't know what it means. It either means that God is so great that no one can beat him up and take what's out in his hand out of it. Or it means that which God has, that which God has given me is greater than all. The value of the church is so great that no one can snatch you out of his hand. And I love that because it's both. It shows us, it gives us comfort both in how much he loves us and how great and strong he is. But the completion of the work is assured. I want you to know that. I want you to feel that. I want it to, to rest, you to rest in that, that when we see him, we will be as he is. When we see him, we will be as he is. When I was in uh, Cleveland, Mississippi, I made a friend named Boo Ferris. Boo was a, uh, in his heyday, I knew him in his, in his 70s and 80s, but in his heyday, he was a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. And he was teammates with Ted Williams and uh, pitched for, in the World Series in game one and game seven. He won game one, lost game seven. And um, he, uh, you know, had this incredible trophy room. And I would, I would listen to him and 
one of the things that he was the proudest of in the in the trophy room was this magazine that had him on the cover. It was uh, it was called the Baseball Weekly then. Now it's called the Sporting News. And he was on the cover. It was a drawing, a caricature of him. And his right arm was a Ferris wheel because his name was Ferris. And uh, it had the, the name of every team in the American League on it because he had beaten every team that year. Had one of the low, still has the second lowest ERA of any pitcher. And he, um, um, you know, just had all these awards and, and things in the room. And he would tell me stories about when he was a boy, when he was, uh, especially when he was at Mississippi State. Now, where we were, where he grew up, a little town called Shaw, Mississippi, is right up next to the river, far western side of the state. And to get to college, he had to go all the way to the eastern side of the state, to Starkville. And he walked. He walked and hitchhiked. And he talked about hitchhiking in the snow and hitchhiking when it was cold and how they would build fires at the crossroads. And if, you were the la if there was no one there when you were picked up, then you were supposed to throw all the wood on it you could so it would still be burning when the next guy came. And I just had this picture. I mean, it was just gross. You know, this, this, this boy, in my mind, I can just see this boy in the rain, <laughs> in the cold of winter, trying to get across the state. I think it's obvious that I would have quit. Um, but he didn't. And I see this pathetic little boy and... I wish so badly that I could go back in time and, and get that magazine and take it to him and say, this is you. Right now, this is awful, but one day you're going to be the best in the world. Don't quit. And that's my job today. To tell you that today it's hard, but one day you are going to be as beautiful as Jesus himself. Don't quit. That day is coming. You're going to behold God face to face. Don't quit. Just keep restarting. Keep eating from this table. Keep drinking the living water. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't quit. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray for the grace to keep restarting. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to believe that we're going to see you. It's hard to believe that you would let us go through days that are as hard as they feel sometimes. And Father, we stumble and we fall and we don't do the things we ought to do and we keep doing things that we wanted to stop doing. But Father, I pray that we would never stop restarting. I pray that we would never stop coming back to your house, eating your feast and being formed by your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.